My name is Warren Etheridge. I get the honor and privilege of being your BSM director right across the street at Horn Frog BSM to the campus of TCU and the, the greater part of the Fort Worth area. Jeremiah and his family are out this week on vacation, and so it is the extreme honor of mine to come and talk on Romans 6, 1 through 4 this morning. So you can turn there if you'd like. We're going to tackle that in a little bit, um, but I, I, could, I would be amiss if I didn't just take a quick second and kind of have us as a church reflect on what incredible volunteers and leaders that we have in our congregation. Um, whether it's the worship, which, oh my goodness, that was incredible this morning, our worship team, whether it's our, our staff that goes above and beyond. I mean, we, we have great leaders among us. And so I'm so grateful to be a part of this church uh, with you guys. I'm, I'm grateful for the, the leadership that we have and the different things that we get to be a part of because of that leadership, including car washes and incredible videos. Am I right? So with that being said, um, I know for me, I get a lot of time as a college minister. I'm going to tuck this wire into my pocket, so I hope I don't mess anything up, guys. Um, As a college minister, I get all the time, Warren, what in the world do you do during the summer? Like, do you have a job? Do you just sleep in? Like, what does that look like? Uh, And I will tell you, because of the weird schedule we keep as college ministers during the school year, sleeping, like as a hibernation model throughout the summer would be appropriate, probably. Um, But we don't. We've gotten to do a lot of cool things as your BSM here in Fort Worth, um, including we we fundraise some of our support raising for us to be on campus. We do a lot. We launched an endowment this year so that we can look to the future and invest and say, how do we help TCU BSM? How do we help Fort Worth BSM be a part of the future generations of college students coming to campus? Um, We connected with new churches throughout Fort Worth, different things like that. Um, And not only that, we currently have two student missionaries that are sent to the corners of the earth um, serving the Lord right now. And both of them actually are from UBC. And so one is Hals Holbert, who's been serving with refugees in France and Greece right now. And he comes back tomorrow. Uh, so you guys can be praying for him and his travel. And then Carson Rapasura, who has been our drummer uh, for the last few years, has been working with those of the Mormon, the Latter-day Saints in the Utah area. And so for those of you that get his email updates, man, he has some incredible stories to tell. Um, and you can read through those email updates and different things like that if you're on his prayer list. But I hope um, we get a chance to hear from him when he gets back as well. And so continue to pray for those guys. They're still on the field. But ever since I got here about four years ago, um, we've always prayed that one day we'd be able to, to look up and see horned frogs sent to the ends of the earth, serving the Lord and, and doing great things for the kingdom of God. And man, we are living in that reality right now. And so thank you so much for what you do as loving our college students well, investing in them. I've always said that the, the youth and zeal of the younger generation, a younger generation, need the wisdom experience and the shaping, the shaping goodness of an of a older generation and vice versa. And so you guys do that so well. And so thank you for continuing to do that, loving college students, welcoming into your home, because we have a whole new class coming in and just I'm going to freak some teachers out when I say this. In about 35 days, the class of 2026 will be here. And so we are praying for those things. Um, And we would love to invite you to to pray with us for that. And so if you get out your phone and you text TCU Prayer, all one word, to 81010, the phone number 81010, it'll add you to our 30 days of prayer um, 
text message thread, which we update every day, the 30 days leading up to the beginning of classes on campus on different ways that you can pray for our horned frogs and to, to see the class of 2026 thrive. And so I'd love for you to join me in that. Um, and if you have trouble with that, you can email me. You can also look at uh, Horn Frog BSM. All of our social media accounts will have that in the next few days. But um, as a husband of a school teacher, I know when I say school starts in like 36 days, some of you went, what? Who told me that, right? Um, and some of you are starting to shake and panic right now. It's okay. I'm praying for you. Um, and you're going to make it, I promise. And so most of us, like as far as college ministers, we get to welcome the students that you've spent years shaping into our hallways. And I, I'm here to tell you that as someone that works with the next generation, I mean, we are in good hands. And so thank you for all that you do as a church. Thank you for all that you do as the people of God. Um, and thank you for letting me be here this morning as well. Because we're teaching on Romans 6.1. And I'm gonna, I'll tell you, the, the weight of Romans, I feel really heftily. I was telling Brad this morning as we were talking through this, I, I didn't, I've never meant to, um, but as a college minister, and I only teach so many times a year and different things like that, I've always subconsciously avoided Romans. Not because it's not great. It is hefty and it is rich. And there's some deep things there. But for the same reasons, I've never felt worthy to teach on these things. There's a, there's a certain prowess and, and, and uh, let's call it theological aptitude that I'm like, oh, I don't know. We need to be careful about that. And so as we come this morning, if you guys would pray for me that we navigate these things well. Um, and in fact, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump into it. So pray with me. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come and worship you. Lord, I pray that your name would be made known. That as we read your scripture, as we read Romans 6, Lord, that you would stir our hearts. That you'd convict us where conviction needs to happen. That you'd point us towards you in places where we've kind of steered away. And God, just that your presence would be felt this morning. We know that you're here, you're in our midst. And so, God, I pray that we'd Worship and glorify you through the reading of your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. About a week ago, uh, I got this rare opportunity. For those of you who don't know, my wife, Sarah, and I, we have two kids, Rin and Ben. Rin is three and a half years old, uh, and Ben is almost seven months old. Uh, I'm an extrovert. My wife is an introvert, and our kids are both, as far as we can tell, super extroverts, okay? And so y'all pray for my wife. She's making it. Um, but our home is very loud all the time. Uh, and usually it's laughter. Sometimes it's not, but you know what I mean. Uh, sometimes it's, it's full of laughter and joy. But last week, my wife and two kids went to Kansas, okay? My wife's from Kansas. You can forgive her later, but she's from Kansas. And so at once a year during the summertime, they get to take a big trip up there. And my whole family except me went, which meant my house was incredibly quiet. Now, there's a couple things I do anytime that the rest of my family is gone. One, I order a pepperoni pizza because I'm the only one in my family that likes just pepperoni on my pizza, okay? So I order a pepperoni pizza, and then I try to do things that nobody else in my family wants to do or, like, can do the way I want to do them because they're there, okay? So usually I'm watching uh, some sort of action movie that nobody else in my family cares to watch or something like that. But last week, I chose to go backpacking. And so uh, you guys didn't know us. We've been here at UBC for about four years, so you don't know us pre-kids in some ways. But uh, 
before we had kids, Sarah and I used to be legit. We're not anymore. We're parents now. Uh, but we'd go backpacking, and we weren't extreme backpackers. We'd do one or two day trips, load everything into a backpack, and go kind of hike into a state park somewhere, spend a couple of days there, and it was really enjoyable. Now, you can't do that with young children, um, but we like to do that. When, it's, when they're not here or when our parents have them or something like that. And so now that they're out of the house, I was like, I'm going to take this trip and go. And so I picked out this state park. It's about an hour and 45 minutes away, down I-20. And I was like, I'm going to try this place out. It's got a great primitive campsite. I can hike about a mile and a half in. This is going to be fantastic. And so Friday, get off work. I'm so excited. Get the backpack in the car, head down I-20. I-20 is nuts as usual on a Friday afternoon, but it's okay. I'm headed that way. And about an hour, it's about an hour and 45 minute drive, about hour 25. I'm sitting there. I need to get gas, which I've got to pray about anyway, because that hurts the, the wallet right now. They're in these days, right? So I pull over, and I'm getting gas. And I'm standing at the pump, and I think to myself how glad I was that I plugged in my headlamp in my kitchen where it's still plugged in. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you don't have a headlamp, you can't see where you're going. And that wouldn't be a big deal. We're all equipped with these amazing smartphones. Whip it out, turn that flashlight on, we're good to go. Except that I was going to be hiking about a mile and a half in, in a place I'd never been before. It was the only light I had. One of the big things I do while camping is I read late into the night because there's nothing else to do when it gets dark like that. And so I couldn't read, I couldn't do all these things. And so sitting at the gas pump, I realized I'd forgotten the one thing I could not forget. And so I turned around. After suffering at the gas pump, I went to Dairy Queen and got ice cream because that soothes my soul better than anything. It was right across the street. It was right there. And I drove an hour and 25 minutes home. Okay? Some things, some things even if they're small, are so important for success and for flourishing. Because if I would have gone without a headlamp, I don't even know the terrain. I don't know anything about it. I would not have ended up where I needed to be. And as we approach Romans 6 through 4, we kind of come into one of these essential verses, these linchpin verses that if we don't get it quite right, we will end up someplace where we are not meant to be and where flourishing will not happen. Um, everything depended on that headlamp that day, and so much depends on these four verses. And so let's jump into it. Building up to Romans 6, okay, Jeremiah's done a great job the last few months of walking us through Romans uh, kind of chapter by chapter. The last few chapters of Romans, we've, he's been talking a lot about justification. What does it mean um, to be justified before the Lord by faith? Um, how do we grow in sanctification? We kind of come to this new place where justification by faith has been dealt with. The penalty of our sin has been dealt with and talked about. But how can we live a holy life in which sin's power is broken. We start shifting our focus, shifting our aim for the rest of the book. Almost through chapter 8, he continues to talk about this. And Romans 6, 1 through 4 is kind of the, the header that turns our direction a little bit. And so let's read that this morning. Romans 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, like I say, this is a heftier passage. Um, and instead of going really, really deep in all the different ways, if you look at these four verses, we could take a lot of different directions in teaching the text. And so what I've kind of opted to do is 
do more of a shallow pass, not to, not to miss anything. I want to take a shallow pass that encompasses a lot of different things. And so we just have kind of three takeaways this morning, three things that Paul is trying to teach us. Um, God's inexhaustible grace is not permission to sin, okay? Um, two, we can't live in sin if we have died to it. And then last but not least, because we were baptized in Christ's death and because of his resurrection, we can walk in newness of life. Okay, and you can kind of see those takeaways up there. Now, for the type A note takers, which I am one, that's not an insult, it's more of a compliment. For type A note takers, I hope this grants you favor. Okay, like I get favor from you because I gave you the three talking points up, up front because I'm going to do something that's kind of strange. Um, for the next few minutes, all the answers to each one of these things all depend on one another. Okay, this is some of the complexity of, of one of Paul's deepest theological writings to a, a people group, to a church, okay? And so you'll notice, like, God's inexhaustible grace is not permission to sin. The reason that is is because we can't live in sin if we have died to it. Because we've been baptized with Christ, we should be walking in newness of life. And that depends because we can't live in sin if we've died to it. So it's, you see this kind of cycle that we kind of run into like that. And so as we take notes... There's going to be some times when I reference something else we've talked about. We'll come back to it and come back to it. It's going to be really complicated for a little bit, okay? So buckle your seatbelts. Hang on. Here we go, okay? So first off, God's inexhaustible grace is not permission to sin. Um, in an attempt to discredit Paul's message of the gospel, um, others, who were most likely Jewish authorities at this time, would attempt to misrepresent his views and show people, how can you follow this guy? This is what he believes, yada, 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 yada. There is no way you can follow this crazy man, okay? This is one of those times. Uh, Paul even references it earlier in chapter 3. We're not going to go there right now. We kind of covered it uh, several weeks ago, well, multiple weeks ago, almost a couple months ago, um, where Paul is setting up. He's talking about how God is faithful even, even when his people aren't, and that even in our unrighteousness, God's righteousness is on display, which leads his opponents to this argument, which Paul quotes in Romans 3.8. And in Romans 3.8, he says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Which is like the most pointed thing Paul says in his writings sometimes, okay? Their condemnation is just. So, throughout the book of Romans, Paul uses this phrase, And what shall we say? to take on those accusations, okay, to offer a rebuttal, okay? Um, so throughout the book of Romans, he does this 10 times where he says, and what do we say, um, or what shall we say? Uh, here, he is super adamant. He says, by no means, God's inexhaustible grace is not permission to sin. And yet, we have to be really careful because just because God's inexhaustible grace, I'm gonna continue to use the same phrasing so I stay on point, okay? Just because God's inexhaustible grace does not give us permission to sin does not contradict that God has inexhaustible grace, okay? Already, you can tell how this is going to get a little complicated fast if we're not careful, okay? We see uh, in Romans, let's see, Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes that how unfathomable God's grace is when he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, yes, just because his inexhaustible grace isn't permission to sin, that doesn't negate his inexhaustible grace, okay? Because that was another argument that would be used as well, okay? We even see that on display in some uh, let's call them religions or faith sets today. 
Like you can only, like you have to be the best of the best. You can only make it in the, the top 144,000 get to have this kind of relationship with God. Or, uh, or if you do these things and you earn God's favor, okay, God's grace is not limited. It's not, it's inexhaustible. Um, but we should have died to sin as we began a relationship with Jesus. And so maybe an analogy is the best way to share this, okay? Um, if a child, I already told you I'm a parent of two, uh, if a child disobeys a parent, yes, it is a new opportunity for that parent's grace and patience to be on display. But at the same time, if that child continues to disobey the parent's instructions, the child will miss out on the life the loving parent knows and wants for him or her, okay? Now, I realize that when we use parents as an example when it comes to talking about the, the father or, the, or, or God, it can get a, really bit, a little bit dicey because not everyone had parents that loved them in a way that's reflective of God's love. Um, I love a quote by Al Andrews, uh, a counselor in Nashville, Tennessee. heard him on a podcast one time, and he, he talked about we were all created to spend eternity with God. That's, that's how Genesis 1 looks like. We were created to spend this eternity with God, but unfortunately um, we're raised by our parents. And so we all have a little bit of baggage in our life that we have to deal with and talk about. But if our parents love us in a way that's reflective of God's love, we know that the guidelines or boundaries they have set for us are only means for protection, for our protection and for our flourishing. Okay? My daughter's three and a half. I told you already she's an extrovert, Rin, like you can hear her singing and yelling in the halls of the church sometimes. Um, but she is kind of dynamite in a small package, okay? And that's, growing up, that's not what my family would have described me as, but as an adult, that's probably a little bit who I am around in some areas. Um, but my daughter has no fear, okay? And in some places, that's maybe not as great of a thing as it probably should be. Like, I need a little healthy dose of fear somewhere, and there's just not. And so she went through a phase of several months ago where she just liked to jump off things, okay? So she's got a, a step stool um, by the kitchen sink where we brush her teeth. She's got kind of a, she likes to help cook in the kitchen sometimes with mom. And so she's got kind of a, a step ladder there that she can get off of. Uh, she likes to stack things on top of each other and then see if she can stand on top. And there's this healthy dose of fear that my child is missing, okay? So y'all pray for us, pray for the medical bills that we will endure throughout time while we try to learn that fear. But when I discipline her, when I say, Rin, hey, I don't think that's a good idea, it's not because I don't want her to experience the fun or the thrill of jumping off something. Even though I'm scared of heights, that's irrelevant to this conversation, okay? I'm doing it because I want to protect her. And I know that if she has a broken leg, it will prevent her from flourishing the way that she was designed to elsewhere, okay? And even when she tells me, because this, for a while, I don't know if you've ever tried to rationalize with a three-and-a-half-year-old. I don't know if I recommend it necessarily, okay? But she would go, Daddy, I've done it fine every other time. Or she would say, Daddy, I didn't hurt myself, though. Or there was a disobedient phase uh, where I would say, hey, don't jump off of that. And she's like, like this? And she would jump off of it. Like, that's a moment. As a parent, you're like, oh, yeah, like that. You know, you try to remain calm. You're not trying to, like, explode on your child. So it comes up in counseling later. Um, there's this moment where she jumps. And she's like, I'm fine now. And I said, well, yes, baby. Like, I know you're fine. But it only takes one time. And I, that's just not, it, the, the risk is not worth the reward which doesn't help for a three-and-a-half-year-old. Like, that, what in the world are they going to do with that, right? And so we're much like children. Like, we want to jump off the highest things. We want to do all these things, but they're not in line with the best way that God intended for us to be. And so um, we have to ask the question, how do we know that God loves us? 
when our parents set our guidelines, we know it's because that we, they want us to keep, or they want to keep us safe. They want us to see us flourish. Um, but how do we know the same thing for God is true? And the answer is really simple. It's almost a little bit cliche, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And the answer is the gospel itself. So the gospel message, the good news that God, in all his glory and magnificence, the same God who created the entire universe that uh, we've seen beautiful pictures of this week. If you've seen the James Webb, uh, for t- just how many of you guys have seen some of the pictures that the, yeah, many of you, less of you than I thought. You should Google it. They're incredible. There's nothing more that makes you feel so small and insignificant as seeing the, I may be messing up that name so y'all can yell at me later, but the James Webb um, telescope that they've got taking pictures of, or satellite they've got pictures retrieving of the first time this week. Um, The same God who created all those things would step off his throne, become a human, fully God, fully man, suffer and die because of it, and then rise from the dead all for a people who can give nothing back to him that he didn't already give them in the first place. I think often of Romans 6.23 when we teach college students how to share the gospel with their peers, um, we teach them uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our imperfection towards God is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Like if that is true, it's, it's an incredible act of love. Because there's nothing that we can give back to God that he didn't already give to us. If we can sing and we can offer our voices who gave us the tongue to speak, if we are articulate and can say the, the, the most well-worded things about the Lord, who is it that gave us the tongue to speak? If we have an incredible mind and can just really think through things that are hard and difficult, who gave us the mind to think? If we have muscles that can lift things, okay? If maybe if you're like me, you've got a, a strong back and a weak mind, there's a place for us to serve in God's kingdom as well, right? Um, but who gave us the muscles to serve him with? So there is nothing that God can get from us that he didn't already give us in the first place. And so for a king to step off his throne and to die for us, people who cannot give him anything that he doesn't already have or hasn't already given, the only answer, the only explanation is a love that we cannot comprehend, an unconditional love in a way that we could never understand in any other context. So maybe, maybe this is a different way to think of it. A high king his most important man in a town, a high king, steps off his throne. He hangs up all of his royal garments, everything that makes him royalty, um, everything that gives him honor and different things, and he blends in with the common people and peasants. Um, and then he walks through his village that he is the king of. Nobody recognizes him. And he hears all these people talking about, if you really want the king's favor, you should do this. And if you really want to be in front of the king, if you want him to like you, you should do this. And he com- like constantly contradicts them and says, well, you've heard it said this way, but I-, I actually think it's this. All these people get upset at him. They see him. And then they try to kill him and put him to death. But yet the high king, who's... A- identified himself as a peasant and a commoner born in a manger, looks at the peasant, the one who was caught stealing something for which the punishment is death, and says, I would rather take his place. I'll take the punishment he deserves. That's the gospel message. The only reason a king would do that is if it's out of love for his people. And so um, when we look at the things, the guidelines, the boundaries that God has given us, they're not from a place of control or anything like that. They're a place of from a place of unconditional love to see us flourish and and thrive in the environment in which we were were made, to do the things that we were created to do. So if we know because the essence of what the gospel message is that God loves us, we should want to follow his commands and not wander into sin, even though that grace is inexhaustible. 
Galatians 2, 19 through 20. As you can imagine, Paul writes on all of these different subjects to many different people. Um, but this is the one I, I particularly appreciated. It was in his letter to Galatia. It says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me, lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul cared greatly that we died as sin. In fact, he, he cares so much. In chapter 6 alone, he mentions it or some version of dying to sin in verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 13. So if Paul says it so many times, maybe we should pay attention. Because the reality is, kind of moving to our second point, we can't live in sin if we've died to it. Okay. Now, this does not mean that we never sin again. Um, that should be what we strive towards, to be more righteous, to be more like Christ, but we will fall short. If we were never to sin again, Christ wouldn't have commanded us not to lust, not to covet, not to condemn. You can look at Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You can see all the different things that Jesus warns his followers about, the different directions he points them in. Um, but if we were to never sin again, like these things would be superfluous. Like we wouldn't need all the different commands that God had given us. He knew that there would still be sin in our life that we wrestled against. And we see examples of that in our heroes of the Bible. About a year ago, we were actually walking through Hebrews 11 and 12. Um, and we saw all these examples of basically the heroes of the Old Testament, the heroes of the Bible, the, the patriarchs um, that came before them, the heroes of the Jewish faith. And for each one of those heroes, there was some place where they fell short. Um, and so we can look at some of those patriarchs and as well as others throughout the Bible of some of the people that have gone before us failed. They had sin in their life. So Noah got drunk, okay? He was not in control of those things. The adultery of David, the, the person that was supposed to lead God's people, um, had this massive lust problem and he had adultery. And not only that, he, to cover it up, he kills one of his closest friends, one of his confidants. Um, Samson had an obvious lust issue. Um, Peter denies Jesus after he'd been following him for three years. So one of Jesus' closest friends, he's been on this, what I like to call a three-year camping trip with Jesus um, all over that part of the world. And then when it comes down to it, when his best friend is on the cross, this man that has changed his life forever, he denies having known him. Some of us have known what it means to be um, backstabbed or different things like that, but not in a way that Jesus did. Okay, not in a way that Peter did. But then, not only that, even after he knows that Jesus is back and he's been forgiven and all these things, he still acts in hypocrisy when Gentiles come in um, at the church of Antioch. He, gives them, he treats them differently than other believers. Okay? He still had sin. Even in Romans 7, in the future, Paul will talk about his sin that he struggled with, this thorn in the flesh. So it doesn't mean that we as followers of Jesus cannot sin or that we are immune to temptation. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now the idea there is there will be temptation. It's not this if, it's when there is temptation. And so... Um, I really like how Jesus himself said it, Matthew 26, 41. And you can write that down. It's not going to be on the screen. But when he's addressing his followers, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And yet, you'll notice that God provides a way of escape. Not necessarily the power to defeat 
or erase temptation. He's already done that for us. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But he's already done that for us, but yet he provides a way of escape anytime that we are tempted. That's what the Bible promises. Um, I really appreciated in, in my research in this section, I appreciated this commentary by a pastor named Stephen Cole. Um, and I wanted to read kind of something he said. In the Bible, death is, primar- is not primarily cessation or ceasing, but rather separation. A physical death, your soul is separated from your body. When we die with Christ, we were separated from the reign of death and put under Christ's reign of righteousness. Its reign over us was broken. And as a result, Paul implies by his rhetorical question that we cannot continue in sin or live in it. He's not talking about committing acts of sin, but rather about living in sin as a way of life. For my college students, we always talk about the difference in living in sin and wrestling with sin. Okay, one drives the train. One is something we wrestle with in the background. Um, But that leads us to the question, if we don't live under the reign of sin, what does it mean to live under Christ's reign of righteousness? And we see that in verse 4 of Romans 6, which I'm going to read for us if I can get there. There we go. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So because we were baptized into Christ's death and because of his resurrection, we can walk in newness of life. But I want to change that question just a little bit, okay, or change our our kind of takeaway. What does it look like to walk in newness of life? The really, the practicality of it. What does it look like to do that? Uh, Warren Wearsby, in one of his commentaries over this, says that sin and the old nature are really hard masters The unsaved person is a slave of sin, but even many Christians will still serve sin, even though their slavery to sin has been broken by Christ. I don't need to take any more time and tell you that I love Disney+. And as a parent, the the brief respite it gives me sometimes, um, especially during the pandemic when we, I basically memorized Frozen 1 and 2 after how many times we'd seen it. Um, But there was a, a season there where we traveled through all the different Disney movies and walked through them all. Um, and one of which was Aladdin. Now, of the Disney movies, I'm not going to get into a debate here. We can talk about it afterward. Uh, of all the Disney movies, Aladdin is my least favorite for multiple reasons. One is because Jasmine is not interested in this guy whatsoever. He's talking to you until she sees that he's got a, a cool carpet. And then, yeah, I'll go with you on that carpet ride, which is the equivalent of saying, like, oh, you've got a cool car? Sure, I'll go with you, which is not what I want to teach my children. Um, but there's this moment when Aladdin is caught out. He's, they, they fasten a ball and chain to the bottom of his leg and they throw him into the ocean hoping to drown him, right? And I can't help but see when I think through sin and, and yes, being set free from sin, but still trying to live under the reign of sin, I think of this picture where we're all drowning at the bottom of the ocean. We've all got these ball and chains, these chains tied to us, keeping us down, tied to the bottom of the ocean. And yet Jesus comes in, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, he breaks the chains for us. He sets us free. But then for some reason... We feel like it's in our best interest to hold on to those chains and pretend like they've still got some sort of hold on us, that they're still there. Now, we've already talked about we still have temptation. God provides a way of escape. But I don't know if it's because we we know this sin better. I'm I'm kind of speculating here. I think it's different for everyone because of the different ways we're wired. I don't know if it's because we have a fear of that freedom, that we hang on to the, the sin that we've known our whole life. I'm talking to myself here. I'm looking in the mirror when I say this as well. Or maybe it's a... a an unknown of what happens if we do what God has asked us to do. Or maybe 
and this is what I think it is for a lot of us, and those are just kind of offshoots of that, maybe sin just looks more appetizing than the Lord does. And instead of choosing the freedom that God offers, we choose the the short-term implications of what it means to choose the sin that we've known rather than the God we haven't, or the God we're not sure of, right? So the question is, what does it look like to walk into newness of life, to let go of the chains that have held us to the bottom for so long, and to walk in freedom that God has given us? Um, And last time I taught here, we talked about the navigator's wheel. Um, So I'm not going to show you that again, but what's it look like to have Jesus in the center of our life and have a consistent relationship with him in prayer and knowing what he said in the Bible, knowing what scripture says, even scripture itself in Psalms says, how does a young man keep his way pure by hiding the word of the Lord in his heart, by knowing what the scripture says about God and about life circumstances. Um, So we have a consistent relationship with him in prayer and in the word, but then we also out of an overflow of having a relationship with Jesus, man, we have a consistent relationship with people inside the church, living in community that we were designed to do, like coming together on Sundays, being involved in the D groups where we're studying God's word together with other people who have the Holy Spirit, having a consistent relationship with the church, with God's people. And then also out of, once again, out of an overflow of that relationship with Jesus and who he is, having a relationship with people that would not identify the same way and say, no, I don't believe any of these things. Do we know how to interact with people that are different than us and to love them well, to be redemptive sources of their life, to be a reflection of who Jesus is to the darkness that the world creates? So part of walking in a newness of life that Jesus wants us to live in, that God has made for us, means doing these things well. Have an overflow of our relationship with him. But then also, I referenced it earlier when we talked about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When God provides a way of escape from temptation, we have to choose him over the temptation in front of us. Do we acknowledge that God in our heart is better than the things, the brokenness that we've known? And maybe it's because he knows the evil in our hearts. Um, that if we conquered something or if we defeated sin, you can even hear it in some ways that people write about conquering. I think um, pornography is, is a big one right now where we talk about wrestling with sin or conquering our addiction. Okay, it doesn't have to be pornography, but a lot of other things. The reality is God has already conquered those things. We don't have power when it comes to these things. But instead, we should choose the Lord who has conquered them overall. And maybe it's because he knows our heart. And if we felt like we'd conquered these things, it would quickly shift from our relationship with God and more to about our relationship with us. And that we are big and mighty and we conquered these things. um, And we overpowered sin or whatever that looks like. But the reality is we don't overpower sin. That's what God did on the cross for us. Instead, what does it look like to want God more than our temptations? To choose him in the midst of those temptations. To say through our actions, obedience to the Lord is so much better than the short-term implications of chasing something that isn't God. Do we understand that the king who would step off his throne for us and take on our death for us knows us better than we know ourselves and all the darkness in our hearts and yet still chooses to lay down his life for us? The more we understand how sinful we are, the more we understand the magnificence of God's love for us. I believe it was Tim Keller who famously wrote the phrase, you are more sinful than you ever thought you were, and you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. So as we close out this morning, and the band comes out and we get ready to to kind of lead a song of invitation, 
Perhaps what Paul teaches us in Romans 6, 1 through 4 resonates with you. And maybe you've seen God not as a loving father, but as an escape from hell. He wants so much more for you than just that. He wants us to flourish and walk in a newness of life that we were designed for. So maybe you've never had a relationship with God before and you want to respond in that way and say, I think this is better than anything else I could have. Maybe you're in the midst of something difficult and need someone to pray over you. And this is a great time for that as well. Each week we have some of the leaders of our church, some of the deacons that come and stand and they're available for you to come and pray with just to kind of lay it out to live in community as God designed us to so they can pray for you. Um, This is a great time for them to do that. So as the deacons come down, um, you can seek them out as well. Um, No matter what you're going through, I'm praying for you to walk in a newness of life that can only come from our Savior who is raised, as verse 4 says, by the glory of the Father. And so let me pray for us this morning. God, we come to you as a broken, messed up people. Lord, you've been so good to us that even in the midst of of moments where we use your grace um, as as permission to sin, God, you were patient with us. And even though you could have removed us from the equation at any point, Lord, you have, you have given us grace. So God, I pray that you would help us to see you in, in your fullness, Lord, that we'd know who it is that you are and that we'd understand what it looks like to flourish, God. That we'd see your commands as, as things that are meant for our good, not for our detriment. And even subconsciously, Lord, just the places where we have chosen other things than you, I pray that you remind us that you are so much better than those things, whatever that may be. So you are, you are really, really good to us. And I just pray that as we walk through Romans 6, 1 through 4 this morning, that your name would be made known and that we'd leave this place um, as better reflections of who you are and that you bring to conviction what needs to be repented of in our life and just that we'd be better followers of you. And so we lift up all these things and pray them in your name. Amen.